Although Abraham Lincoln is universally remembered as the martyred hero who saved the Union during its darkest hours, his relationship with the Jewish community is not as well known. In this class, we talk about Abraham Lincoln's many fascinating Jewish connections. As always, please like and share this podcast. And if you have any questions, please leave us a comment. Welcome to the Jewish History Podcast. I'm Rabbi Nachum Meth. Thanks for joining to this event, Abraham Lincoln and the Jews. So I want to read a quote that you may have, I sent out an email to some of you, you may have received. Rabbi Isaac Mayer Wise, who is a very significant person, very significant Jew in the um, mid-19th century, certainly during the times of the Civil War. One second. I apologize. Rabbi Isaac Mayer Wise was really one of the leading rabbinic figures in the mid-19th century. And we'll talk a little bit more about him in a moment. But five days after Lincoln's assassination, April 20th, published in the Cincinnati Commercial, it's quoted as saying the following, Abraham Lincoln believed himself to be bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh. He supposed himself to be of a Hebrew parentage. He said so in my presence. And indeed, he possessed the common features of the Hebrew race, both in countenance and features. Say Abraham Lincoln Jewish? I don't think so. And we'll talk about that maybe in a, in a, in a shortly. But what we do know about Lincoln, he was a deeply religious man. Abraham Lincoln was a deeply religious man, yet never belonged to any church his whole life. Quoted from the Bible regularly, but hardly from the New Testament. Almost always from the Old Testament. Hardly ever referenced Jesus. And supposedly Mary Todd Lincoln would stated that on the day that Lincoln was assassinated, earlier in the day, he had, t- she, he had told her that it's his lifelong dream. He wants to go ahead and visit Jerusalem. I don't know if Abraham Lincoln was Jewish, but what's definitely clear about Lincoln is he certainly had a fondness for the Jewish community, had many, many Jewish connections, and certainly embodied many Jewish traits. There's a crazy story, kind of a wild story. In 1860-something, Sometime during Lincoln's administration, a fellow named Henry Wentworth Monk shows up at the White House. Now, back then in the good old days, if you wanted to go see the president, you know what you did? You walked to 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, you knocked on the door, and you said, is Lincoln around? They probably said, no, but come back later tonight. And you did, and you'd meet him. He was incredibly accessible. It's hard for us to fathom just how accessible a person he was. This fellow monk was a a bit of a uh, a hippie, I guess, probably a little nuts. But he went ahead and he met with Lincoln and he said, why not follow up the the emancipation of the Negro by a still more urgent step, the emancipation of the Jew? Lincoln said, what are you talking about? Don't Jews have freedom? And this fellow monk who had traveled the world, had actually lived in Israel for a while, explained to him that Jews in Eastern Europe 
were virtually serfs. They had no rights. They were persecuted. And the United States, led by you, Mr. Lincoln, should go ahead and try to go ahead and ameliorate the situation of the Jews. Lincoln said back remarkably, that is a noble dream, Mr. Monk, and one shared by many Americans. I myself have a regard for the Jews. Lincoln had a fondness for the Jewish community. And tonight, what we're going to try to do is three things. We're going to try to go ahead. We're going to first take a little snapshot of what the Jewish community in the United States of America looked like during Lincoln's life. Sort of a general portrayal. What was going on? What did United States Jewry look like during that time? And particularly during the Civil War. Secondly, we'll take a look at some of the fascinating connections that Abraham Lincoln had directly with the Jewish community. A lot of interesting anecdotes, but a couple of really fascinating and significant stories. And then thirdly, favorite part, time permitting, we'll take a look at some Torah perspectives on some of Lincoln's background, his whole overall story, and try to make some Torah connections um, between Lincoln and some core Torah values. Lincoln's born in 1809. Lincoln is born in 1809. The Jewish community in the United States of America in 1809 was tiny. It was absolutely tiny. It's hard to know exactly how many, but roughly 3,000 Jews are the number that they kick around. Who were these Jews, 1809, in the United States of America? So I was talking to someone before the program started. Most of these Jews were actually from the Caribbean islands or from South America, most notably from Recife, Brazil. The United States Jewish community really began, it's kind of funny, we know exact name, place, time, September, I believe, 20th, 1654, were 23 refugees from Recife, Brazil, fleeing from the persecution of the Spanish, still from the Spanish Inquisition, still on the run in 1654. And they fled to the United States of America. And slowly but surely over the next 300 years or 250 years, you know, slowly became a small Jewish community. These were mainly Spanish Portuguese Jews. These were mainly Jews of Spartic origin, and they were tiny. Most of them, almost all of them, left lived east of the Appalachian Mountains. So mainly on the East Coast. Cities like Baltimore, New York, Charleston had a big Jewish community. Savannah, Georgia had a big Jew. Big. These were minor. These were tiny. But that's where the Jewish community roughly was. Now, Lincoln is born. For the first 20 so years of his life, he in almost all likelihood never saw a Jew. He in almost all likelihood, Lincoln is born in Kentucky, then live, moves to Indiana. We have no records of any Jews living in Hardin County, Kentucky, nor in Spencer County, Indiana. And it's almost highly doubtful that he ever encountered a Jew for the first 20 or so odd years of his life. However, by the eve of the Civil War, you know, fast forward just a few decades, not too long, by let's say 1850, 1860, there are upwards of, again, the numbers are hard to really know, there are upwards of 150, 160,000 Jews in the United States. That's a huge increase. Where did these Jews come from? And the answer is they came from the same places that the non-Jewish immigration in the United States came from, and that was primarily Central Europe, mainly places like Europe, uh, pardon me, places like Germany and Prussia. 
That was mainly where Jews came. Now, very few Jews came from Eastern Europe. If you hear about a Jew who came from Poland in the, 18, in the early 1800s, highly doubtful, probably where they came from. There was a, a significant amount of, of Jews from the city of Posen, which is Polish in its ethnicity, but was actually under Prussian control. That's the bulk of the Jews that immigrated, and they immigrated in large, large numbers. These are Ashkenazic Jews, and they, the pattern of their immigration is they first came to the eastern seaboard, to the, the, the major cities on the east coast, and then they indeed did make themselves, they moved themselves across the mountains and started settling all the little teeny communities you know, west of the Appalachian, west of the Alleghenies, and along the Ohio River, and all the way, you know, even to the Mississippi River. And that was what the Jewish community looked like. Now, when the Civil War, the issue of slavery, really becomes a hotbed issue, and that's obviously going to be the predominant feature of Lincoln's life that we are interested about, the question is, is what did the Jewish community, what, was, what were their attitudes, what were their perspectives on the issue of the day, slavery? And in almost all probability, and we don't know this for sure, we don't have a census, we don't, we, you know, no one really took great data on the 150, 160,000 Jews, what were your attitudes and feelings on slavery? But most scholars seem to believe that the Jewish attitudes and feelings about slavery probably mimicked what the rest of the country also looked like. Why is that? Most scholars will tell you it wasn't so much because Jews wanted to fit in or needed to fit in, it was probably because Jews you know, really integrated very quickly and assimilated within the greater community. So depending on your regional affiliation, you very often picked up the values, culture, ideals, and attitudes of the people living next to you. Rambam famously teaches us that we are, people are influenced by your society, by your group, by your community, by your friends, by your colleagues. And Jews, as they settled farther in the South, tended to be more open to slavery. They settled in places like New England, places like Boston. They tended to be abolitionists. Now, it's a very small community in, in, the, in the New England area, but typically Jews were in four different categories. Again, mirroring what the general community also looked like. You have some Jews who are abolitionists, who fought out and spoke out strongly and stridently against the evils of slavery. This was a small group. This was a small group, much like the general population. Most of the population in the United States in the 1850s and even at Lincoln's election in 1860 were not hard, fast abolitionists. On the other extreme, you had Southern slave owners, and many of them, some of them were Jewish. Not many, some. It was a very small number, but there were definitely some Southern slave owners and who thought slavery was a moral good and a positive and own bread sold slaves. Were the Jews in control of the slave trade as some would like to, you know, anti-Semites would like to say the answer is of course not. There are very few Jews involved in the slave, slave trade. It was probably, it was a minuscule amount. But were there Jews who owned slaves and sold slaves and bought slaves? The answer is yes. There were very few Jews, however, who actually owned plantations. The big southern plantations, the conflict, very, very few of those, for one obvious reason. There weren't very many wealthy Jews, and even the Jews that were wealthy tended to not be in the plantation business. That just wasn't a Jewish, a typical Jewish profession. Jews tended to be more 
tradesmen, you know, merchants buying and selling thing. But agriculture, certainly during that time, was not a very um, Jewish trade, simply because, again, demographics. Where did these, these Jews all come from? Central Europe, in Germany, in Prussia, Jews couldn't even own, you know, hardly were able to own land. Jews were not living an agricultural life. But that said, there were some Jews um, who were out and out slave owners. Probably the most significant and probably the most well-known you may have heard of is a fellow named Judah Benjamin. Who was Judah Benjamin? Judah Benjamin was the first Jewish senator. He was a senator from Louisiana. He wasn't particularly connected to his Judaism. He renounced his faith. Uh, no, he didn't renounce his faith, but he wasn't a particularly con- a deep connection to his, uh, to his Judaism. And when the South seceded, when Louisiana seceded from the Union, so Judah Benjamin, along with virtually every other elected official in the South, they also, he also left the Union and he joined the Confederacy. And he would actually first become the Attorney General, then the Secretary of War, and then the Secretary of State of the Confederacy. Judah Benjamin was one of the most influential and significant and most powerful people during the short-lived Confederacy, he was an, he was born to he was uh, born to a, a, a Sephardic Jewish mar- uh, woman. He did not marry Jewish and didn't really practice Judaism. And as I mentioned, he owned slaves. He owned about 130, 140 slaves. And Senator Wade of Ohio had a great quip. He would say that Judah Benjamin was an Israelite with Egyptian principles. How's that? So that was one category. The third category were the Democrats. The Democrats during the, particularly the, eight, the late 1850s, 1854, 1856, and again, 1860, the Democrats were led by Stephen Douglas. I'm sending you all back to your high school history class. If you don't remember Stephen Douglas, you're all, you gotta go back. We're gonna make you write some essays and do some homework. Who is Stephen Douglas? Stephen Douglas was, was a senator from Illinois who kind of voiced the opinion of the Democrats. Now, when we were taught in elementary school about the Civil War and the tensions between slavery and anti-slavery, we, in our mind, kind of looked like there were the good guys and the bad guys. There were the people who said slavery is horrible and evil, and then you had the bad people in the South, and they all had slaves. And that, everyone kind of fit into those nice two categories. The reality is that's not the case. The abolitionists were a small, small group. The actual slaveholders were actually also a pretty small group. Most people in the South were sympathetic to slavery, and that's why the South indeed seceded. But most people, a huge chunk of people in the North were Democrats. Who were the de- What was the Democratic plank in the 1850s and 1860s? They didn't care about slavery. They were fine with slavery. And they thought that there were some people up North that are making too much of a stink about not liking slavery, and they're causing all this friction. And Stephen Douglas couldn't care about the blacks. He didn't care about slavery, and he would be happy with the status quo. And they desperately wanted to hold on to that status quo. That was actually probably the largest group in the North. It was of the largest group, if you conclude many of the Democrats in the South. The problem is, in the South, the Democrats split off of the Northern Democrats, and you know they seceded. But in the whole country, the Democrats are probably the strongest group. That explains why the South was so powerful and influential for the last four decades in the United States history, because the Democrats were really able to, they had the whole South vote, and many, many people up North were fine with slavery. They didn't care about slavery. And then there was the fourth group, 
The fourth group were the Republicans, the Lincoln Republicans. The Republicans were a new group, the party that was brand new starting in 1856. It was a small group that really wanted, they weren't abolitionists. It's an important point. Lincoln, certainly when he started his campaign and he started his rise to prominence, was not an abolitionist. He wasn't interested in getting rid of slavery. What the Republicans wanted was to contain slavery. They didn't want slavery growing any farther, and they wanted slavery to just kind of go away slowly but surely over the next many, many decades. That's really what Lincoln stood for. They were interested in preserving the Union. Lincoln did not want to abolish slavery in the South, but he wanted to contain slavery. Most Jews probably, we don't know this for sure, most Jews identified with the Democrats. How do we know that? Because where were most Jews living? New York City. New York City was then, and still is, a massively democratic town. And it based, if you look based on like zip codes and how people voted, it was pretty clear that Jews tended to vote for the Democratic Party and Stephen Douglas. What about the rabbis? I'm a rabbi. I got to talk about what did the rabbis talk about. What were their feelings? It really is the same thing. They fell on very similar lines. So some rabbis were very vocal against slavery, real abolitionists, and probably the most famous. There was a, a rabbi named David Einhorn from Baltimore, Maryland. Now, Baltimore, Maryland was actually a slave state. It would end up not seceding from the Union, so it was called a border state. But slavery was a very real part of life, particularly in Baltimore. And Einhorn spoke out about, against the, the evils of slavery. He was the rabbi of a shul called Har Sinai, which, and if anyone who's here from Baltimore, I am pretty sure I can't confirm this. Har Sinai is, if you know, if anyone who here is from Baltimore and the Jewish community in Baltimore, where the base Yaakov, the girls' high school, is on this beautiful, you know, thing, I'm pretty sure that's where David Einhorn was the rabbi. I, someone, if anyone's watching at home or anyone can confirm that, I'm pretty sure. He spoke out stridently against slavery. And what are the people in Maryland? They didn't like that. Einhorn had to run. He had to flee for his life. He had to flee for his life because he spoke out against slavery. However, he was not the majority. Most rabbi, many rabbis were, were I guess, pro-slavery or more aligned with the Democrats. Rabbi Morris Raphael of New York, he, and it was, you know, was so fascinating was that the non-Jewish community was very interested in what the rabbis had to say. They wanted to know. The rabbis know, you know, they, they know the Old Testament. What is their opinion? And it was, it was sought after. And Morris Raphael, he published a work and he argued slavery is okay. It's ordained in the Torah. It's actually in the Ten Commandments. Where is it in the Ten Commandments? Slavery in the Ten Commandments, in the Ten Commandments. If you look in, in, in the Ten Commandments, it's actually there twice. You shall not covet, shall not cover it, your friend's wife, his house, and his slave. And you can't go ahead on Shabbos, on the, on the Sabbath. You got to make sure that you rest and your servant and your slaves rest. Direct reference to slavery. So they went ahead and he'd argued, you see, slavery is condoned in the Torah. Isaac Mayer Wise, who we talked about earlier, he was heavily aligned with the Douglas Democrats. Isaac Mayer Wise, as an aside, is kind of a slippery person. He is of the most significant rabbinic figures. He's a reform rabbi. He's really kind of the granddaddy of reform Judaism in the mid-19th century and late 19th century. But he was a bit of a, a phony. He was a fraudster. He just said what everyone wanted to hear. And he thought this was the most politically expedient position. He called Lincoln out. He called Lincoln a, a, no, you know, a nobody. He would dismiss um, 
Isaac, he dismissed um, Lincoln regularly. By the way, he was the one, again, he was the one who, who claimed that Lincoln was Jewish. What do I think? He probably made that up. It was a popular thing to say. Lincoln had just died. Lincoln was the savior. He was, uh, and he wanted to claim him as one of our own. So he said, now that's probably what happened. The other possibility is Lincoln was a great storyteller. It's one reason why I love Lincoln. He was a great, phenomenal storyteller. And when you're, you know, not that I would ever do this, he could sometimes tell a tall tale. So, you know, it could be he told the rabbi what he wanted to hear. The soldiers who fought in the Civil War were also represented. There were many Jewish soldiers who fought in the Civil War as well. The numbers are, again, hard to come by. I have written over here 7,000 Union troops. I think it was probably more than that. It's probably closer to 10,000, if not 12,000 soldiers who fought for the, for the Union. About 3,000 soldiers who fought for the Confederates. And just like the non-Jewish population, you would often have families that were divided, particularly families that lived along the border, states like Maryland, Kentucky, Missouri, and the like, if there was a Jewish family living there, they would often be divided, and you'd have brother literally fighting against brother. The soldiers who lived in, who fought during the Civil War, many of them tried to maintain their Jewish faith and their Jewish tradition. One of the most prominent uh, scholars and researchers on the Civil War. And just as an aside, I should note, if you see over there, we have a, a collection of a lot of interesting photographs and anecdotes. After the class, please you know, take some time to read that. You also see a, a book convenient for a class like this, Lincoln and the Jews by Sarna, who's really one of the great thinkers. He actually, actually wrote a, a short essay about the Civil War and the Jews in general. And he has, he has a, a fascinating little passage, like kind of like a a short little description of what life was like for soldiers during the Civil War. He says, maintaining traditional Jewish observances under wartime conditions proved immensely difficult, though com commensurately satisfying for those who lived up to the challenge. Two brothers named Levy, who fought for the Confederacy, reputedly observed their religion faithfully, never even eating forbidden food. Direct quote from the Levy brothers. Same is true of a Northern soldier who described how Jewish men um, in his outfit, met for worship each Saturday on the outskirts of their camp in the Virginia forest. One Jewish soldier planned to journey 12 miles to attend high holiday services in Norfolk. You hear that, everyone? 12 miles to get to Shul. <laughs> Two years later, Jews stationed near Vicksburg elected a young rabbi to conduct high holiday services out in Vicksburg. Southern soldiers purchased the requisite matzah in Charleston and cooked a fine traditional dinner complete with a pound and a half of fresh kosher beef. The northern, northern soldiers stationed in West Virginia obtained from Cincinnati some supplies that they needed for their Seder. There's a charming little letter written by one soldier. He talks about how they were sitting down to their Passover Seder, and he, he claims that, but, and he had the, they had the matzah, and they had a, calls it a barrel of matzah. And I don't know how you transport matzah in barrels, but he talks about barrels of matzah, how they sat down and they did the four cups, and they had the meat, but they couldn't find muror, the bitter herbs. So he said, we just took some bitter, some bitter food that we found. We ate that instead of the muror. Does that count? Brian Halach, are you allowed to do that? The answer is, it doesn't count that you are supposed to do that, if you, just as a remembrance, you don't forget. But it's just the, you, some of these soldiers, they tried to maintain their Judaism as best as they could. That's what Jewish life looked like, roughly speaking, during Lincoln's lifetime. But let's talk about Lincoln and his direct connections with the Jewish community. When you talk about Lincoln and the Jews, Lincoln had several Jewish friends, and perhaps the, the closest 
friend that he had was a fellow named Abraham Jonas. You see on our, our little over here, that's Abraham Jonas. Abraham Jonas met Lincoln, went for, I think first in Connecticut and then in, uh, in Illinois. Jonas had a very similar background and a lot of similar interests to Lincoln. They were both lawyers. They were both start up affiliated with the Whig Party, then jumped over to the Republican Party. Um, he was very well-spoken. Abraham Jonas is a fascinating person. His life kind of, it, it, sometimes you like you find these one individuals and they typify, they almost, they're almost like prototypes of what Jews looked like during their era. Abraham Jonas is one of them. He was born in 1801 in England, but I believe his family, they were en route, I'm pretty sure, from Prussia. Start off, he was born as an Orthodox Jew. He settled in Cincinnati in 1819. He went back to New York to marry, this is amazing, Gershon Mendes Satius's daughter. Now, if you study your American Jewish history, Gershon Mendes Satius is probably the most significant Jew of the early 19th century. He would end up being, there weren't really rabbis yet then at the time. The first rabbi doesn't make it to the United States until 18. 40, I believe, is Abraham Rice. The first time he makes it, there's a rabbi in the United States. Is Abraham Rice. Abraham, uh, Gershom Mendesatius was the spiritual leader of the biggest synagogue, the most influential and the biggest and most significant shul, most significant synagogue in North America, in the United States. That was Sheriff Israel. It still exists today. It's the oldest synagogue. It's the Turo Synagogue. No, the Turo Synagogue is the oldest building. The oldest congregation is Sheriff Israel Congregation, Spanish-Portuguese shul, still you know, they still have a minion, probably having a minion for Marev tonight. But anyone wants to, oh, they're three hours ahead of us. But they they still have a show, they still have a minion. That was the first, that was that 1654 congregation. Gershon Mendesatius had a pro, I think he had like 17 children. One of them married this Abraham Jonas. He, Jonas would form Cincinnati's first synagogue, the B'nai Israel in a congregation in 1824. But he eventually, he would abandon his Judaism. Very, very typical of those migrants who, those Jewish migrants who made it into the United States. Um, according to one quote, he delivered speeches on Shabbos, ate non-kosher, and openly dined with Lincoln in an oyster saloon in 1854. I don't know what an oyster saloon is, but Jonas is elected to the Kentucky legislature. He meets Clay, becomes buddies with Lincoln. Lincoln would write, I think, no, not, we don't, not in that little blurb, but somewhere else. Lincoln would call him one of my most valued friends. Um, he supported Lincoln's Senate bid in 1854 and the famous Lincoln-Douglas debates, which we alluded to earlier, the, the big debates of Lincoln and Douglas. Jonas, Abraham Jonas, was actually one of the sponsors of those debates. Lincoln would actually send him, in 1860, Lincoln published the debates with Douglas and that became sort of like PR material. People want to know what were Lincoln's attitudes and beliefs? What did he stand for? So they published these speeches and Lincoln inscribed, I think it was actually in a letter, Jonas asked him, hey, can you send me one of those books? And Lincoln said, sure, as soon as it's published, the publisher is running late and it couldn't deliver it on time. And I think it was in that letter, he, he called Jonas, one of my dearest friends, and eventually he would send him an, an inscribed copy. And we have that copy, it still is, an, is, is still extant. And he has, Lincoln has an, an, an inscription. Um, they were dear friends. Jonas and Lincoln was, was uh, a close friend. And it's actually fascinating. It's actually so sad. But, you know, as we mentioned, again, they're in Kentucky, southern Illinois. That's where, where uh, Jonas is originally from. Then he moves to Illinois. His children, I think he had like something like six kids. It was a divided family. I think five of his children, even though Jonas was such a close friend of Lincoln, five of his sons 
fought for the Confederacy, one of his sons would fight for the Union. And indeed, it's a remarkable story, and I believe it's right here. This is the letter, if you want to check it out afterwards. It was one of his sons, Charles, ends up getting captured by Union forces and is, and is, and is in a soldier's prison. And it was, I think, in like 1862 or 1864, something like that, where Jonas, Abraham Jonas, got very, very fatally ill, and Jonas would end up dying. And Lincoln wrote a letter. Jonas asked Lincoln, hey, I'd love to see my son. And, jo- and Lincoln paroled Charles Jonas for three weeks to go visit his dying father and let him stay for Shiva. It's a remarkably touching story, which he did. Jonas actually had another son who would end up becoming a senator, the United States senator from Louisiana. And I, my research tells me he was the last Jewish elected senator in the Deep South until that guy from Georgia who just got elected. What's his name? John something or other. But I don't think he's, he's not halakhically Jewish. But until that guy got elected, he was the last Jew to be elected in the Deep, in the deep South. Now, as I mentioned, Lincoln was, had a deep connection to the Jewish community. And had a, had a very endearing connection to the Jewish community. That doesn't mean that he never had controversy. One of Lincoln's most memorable orations, I believe, I'm not sure, but in the Lincoln Memorial, if you go to the, got to go to the Lincoln Memorial. You go to the Lincoln Memorial and you see Lincoln sitting on the throne. So if, if you're looking at Lincoln, if Lincoln's over here, so off to the left, inscribed on the wall is the Gettysburg Address. On the right, I believe, is the second inaugural which is just an amazing piece of oration. But I also believe the first inaugural, I think is also inscripted on the wall. Someone fact checked that, I don't know. But the first inaugural address, Lincoln's first inaugural address was a masterpiece. And he would write, we are not, he was, he was this, the, the, the South had just seceded. They had just seceded. The war had not yet started. And Lincoln is trying to keep the fragile country, trying to keep it together. And he wrote, and Lincoln would speak, we are not enemies, but friends. We must, we must not be enemies. Though passion may have strained, it must not break our bonds of affection. The, and this is the, the most memorable line. He would write, the mystic chords of memory stretching from every battlefield and every patriot grave to every living heart and hearthstone all over this broad land will yet swell the chorus of the union when again touched as surely they will be by the better angels of our nature. Just absolutely poetic. But he would go on to say, and he would try to call everyone and unite everyone to come together and be loyal to the Union, he would write, he would, uh, Lincoln would, plant, would, would argue at, at his inaugural, intelligence, patriotism, Christianity, and a firm reliance on him who has never yet forsaken this favored land are still compa- competent to adjust in the best ways all our present difficulty. And he implored, you know, the, the, everyone's uh, intelligence, pra- patriotism, and Christianity. Some people in the Jewish community would write to the Israelite, which is actually a newspaper published by Isaac Mayer Wise. And they said, what? What about us? What about us Jews? Do we not count for anything? And it's interesting is that from that point on, I think it actually that that criticism that Lincoln calls for everyone's patriotism and Christianity. I think if you'll notice in his rhetoric, he stopped using the word Christianity and started subbing it with the word religion when he would talk about people's faith. In 1862, he wrote a remarkable letter. Actually, we have a copy of it right over there. A remarkable letter, I believe, to Secretary, Secretary I believe it's the Secretary of War, not Cameron, it's Stanton, I believe. It's 1860, 1862. 
it might be Cameron still, but I'm pretty sure it's Stanton, where he wrote, you know, one of the big things, you had this huge army, massive army by 1862. You know, who are the officers? The officers, the guys in charge. And people are always jockeying for higher positions, higher, uh, you know, titles. They wanted to be a colonel. Colonel wanted to be a brigadier general. Brigadier general wanted to be the major general. Everyone wanted higher, you know, higher appointments. And Lincoln would write, I believe we have not yet appointed a Hebrew. He wrote that to Stanton. Now, he was wrong. There were many, many Jewish officers in the, in the army. But they decided to appoint, I think his name was Chaim Moshe, but he went by C.M. Levy, who we mentioned Morris Rafael, who was pro-slavery and actually originally spoke out against Lincoln. But by the time, once the war broke out, he was strongly aligned with the North and Union. And they appointed C.M. Levy as a quartermaster, which was actually a very significant job back then. The quartermasters were the ones who were kind of in charge of making sure that all the different armies were supplied. Um, and there's a great, great little anecdote. I, I, I don't know if this is true, but they say over the following story, and it's a great story. So if it's not true, we'll make it up anyway. It's so fun. That Rabbi Rafal, at a later point, would, would again, knock on Lincoln's door. And he asked that one of his other sons, to, he wanted him to get a, a promotion, to become a colonel. You know what Lincoln said? What are you doing here in the White House? Go back to Shul and Davin. What are you doing here? You should be leading your congregation. And Rafal said, no, 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 don't worry. My assistant rabbi is taking care of it. So Lincoln said, okay, fine. And he gave him the appointment. One of the big controversies during the Civil War that involved the Jewish community was the issue of, the Jew of chaplaincy. Chaplains. Chaplains are still part very much of the United States military. Indeed, the chaplaincy, the, the kind of the idea of having the chaplains in the military predates the, the actually the United States of America itself. The first chaplains were part of the army already in 17, 1775, but they were all Protestant. It wouldn't be until the beginning of the Civil War that Catholics were allowed to become uh, chaplains in the army. And in 1861, it was called the Volunteer Bill, which is the first one of the pieces of legislation that authorized soldiers and paying of soldiers and authorizing the army. It wrote that no legal impediment, no, I'm sorry, it wrote, it called for chaplains to be regularly ordained ministers of a Christian clergy. Christian clergy. So if you were Jewish, you couldn't be a chaplain. Now, that's clearly against the Establishment Clause. That violates First Amendment rights. But back then, I got just somehow it slipped itself in. Interesting, one of the first people to actually call it out was Clement Vallandigham. Now, if you study, he's a little bit of a footnote in American history, but he's a fascinating footnote. Who is Clement Vallandigham? Clement Vallandigham is on the wrong side of history. He's going to make his way into one of my sermons one of, my, one of these days. He's a remarkable person. He was actually, I believe, from Ohio, I want to say. And he was a Democrat. He was like so against the war, a Northern Democrat. He was like one of the leaders. Of the, he would actually end up the war in Canada in exile. He was one of the first, now one of the controversial things, nothing to do with the Jewish community, one of the most controversial things that Lincoln did during the Civil War is that in times of war, the president has the right to suspend the writ of habeas corpus. The president feels that there's an insurgency, there's a, a re rebellion, he can just throw you into jail. And that's what he did with it, with, uh, with Volandigam. He was thrown in jail for a while, eventually got out and he got exiled to Canada. But he spoke out at every turn against Lincoln. Which, as I mentioned, he's always on the wrong side of history. He's always he was one of enemy of, of Lincoln's foes, and this is one example. I guess he was kind of on the right side of history, but he spoke out against the government 
And he called this as a Shanda. How can it be that the United States passes a law? What about the Hebrews? What about the Jews? If they want to have a chaplain, state Gishribin, it says in the law, you have to be Christian. What's fascinating is that Valandagam wasn't even petitioned. I don't think he had any Jews in his district. I think he was a congressman or a senator at the time. I don't think he had a very strong, you know, Jewish um, constituencies. Why is he writing? Why is he speaking out against this? I think it's because he just didn't like Lincoln. He didn't like the government. He used any, any, any ammo he could. Um, eventually, this is actually, it's fascinating little story. It's a little, I mean, it's a little bit of a footnote in, in Jewish American history, but it's important. This was one of the first times that the Jewish community, if we use those words, actually kind of sort of came together. They put together this weird, I don't even know if I have the name of it. It was called, it was a little group called the Jewish, I don't know, it was some kind of network. It was almost like a board of rabbis of sorts of, 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 influential people who would petition and would really lobby the government, you know, to change the law. When Lincoln heard about this and he found out about it, he said, I'll do whatever he can um, to change the law. Um, it's interesting. There were, there were many people who were opposed. They wanted to keep it as, um, you know, that the clergy could only be Christian. Who opposed it? So some, you know, Protestant preachers. They didn't want, God forbid, the country to have any kind of Jewish chaplain or any kind of Jewish influence. They spoke out about it. What's also interesting is a lot of the reform rabbis, the leading reform rabbis, spoke out against it. They didn't want the law to change. Now, why would that be? Many of the answer is it's kind of an interesting thing. What they were concerned about is they didn't want their... Now, if you're, they were concerned if you're going to allow Jewish rabbis as chaplains well, who's going to go ahead and certify that someone's a rabbi? And they were very nervous. Is there going to be, is this going to create some kind of board, some kind of governing body that's going to say, you're a good rabbi and you're not a good rabbi and you're qualified, but Meth, I mean, he's, he's great, but Davidowitz, I don't know if he, you know about him. So they were concerned about that and that's why they were against it. But eventually it would pass. Um, and, and there were, you know, eventually there would be a very small amount because again, there were very, very few Jewish soldiers. But there were several, just a handful of, um, of Jewish chaplains. One of the most fascinating Jewish figures connected to Lincoln was a guy named Yisachar Zachary, Issachar Zachary. He was a chiropodist. What's a chiropodist? I have no idea. I had to Google it. A chiropodist is what they called it. He was a podiatrist. They used to call him chiropodists back then. Lincoln penned the following. He, he, Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln would write the following letter. Dr. Zachary has operated on my feet with great success and considerable addition to my comfort. A. Lincoln, September 22nd, 1862. That is a remarkable letter. You have a president giving his haskama, writing an approbation for his podiatrist. What's even more remarkable about that is the date, September 22nd, 1862. What was on day? What happened on April, on September 22nd, 1862? That's when Lincoln announced to his cabinet and announced to the world the preliminary, the preliminary Emancipation Proclamation. It's one of the most significant documents ever promulgated in the history of humanity. On the same very day, Lincoln's got his Jewish doctor, you know, cutting his toenails. And Lincoln has, takes the time to write a letter about it, how he was so good. The New York World, which is a newspaper, would write about Dr. Zachary that he enjoyed Mr. Lincoln's confidence, perhaps more than any other private individual, and was perhaps the most favored family visitor 
to the White House. Remarkable. Isaac Zachary, fascinating. If you study Lincoln, one of the things that, you, that emerges from Lincoln's personal life is he had a horrible marriage. Mary Todd Lincoln was, according to almost, you know, almost any modern scholar or scholar in the account, she had tremendous, suffered from tremendous mental illness and was a very, very, very difficult woman to deal with. Um, somehow, Dr. Zachary was able to get, she got along with nobody. Dr. Zachary was able to get along with Mary Todd Lincoln. Zachary claimed to be born in Charleston in the late 1820s and to be a doctor of chiropody, that he had his, his, his a degree, and he published an original book. So he claimed. In reality, he was a charlatan. He was born in England in the mid-1820s, and although he was definitely knowledgeable in podiatry, people liked him, skilled in his practice, we have no evidence that he ever went to school, and his work was plagiarized. Can you imagine that? Someone trying to achieve political influence with his Jewish connections, and he's really a fraud and a charlatan? Could never be, George Santos. Isn't that amazing? In any event, he was highly regarded by many. Many people thought he was a good toe doctor, including Lincoln. But where the story gets even weirder, now he was a, he's just like a mysterious guy. Who is this guy, Dr. Zachary? It gets even weirder. Beginning on January 1st, 1863, we have all the letters. Now, what's on January 1st, 1863? That's the day the Emancipation Proclamation actually came into law. And as Lincoln is actually, you know, sending the memo, signing the thing for the Emancipation Proclamation, he's also issuing orders for Dr. Zachary the following. Dr. Zachary would make his way down to New Orleans, where we have a letter from General Nathaniel Banks, who wrote, in pursuance of your instructions from the president, I desire you during your con continuance in the city to mingle freely with its people of all classes, especially with your own countrymen, read Jews, to ascertain and report as far as possible the nature of its public opinion, as well as the opinion of individuals. In addition, he was instructed to be on the lookout for the plans of the public enemy and the character of his troops, the extent of their supplies and ammunition, and the different organizations of which their army may be composed. Spare no expense in obtaining that which is of importance. Dr. Zachary was a spy. Now, Sarna tries to make this into a bigger deal than it was. This doesn't seem to me like a James Bond, like a, you know, a cloak and dagger, secretive type of thing. New Orleans was very much, was obviously a southern town. But early on in the war, in the war New Orleans, because of its strategic importance, fell into Union hands very, very early in the war. I'm going to say, if I recall my history, let me do the math. By, by the, I'm going to say February of 1862. Certainly by the spring of 1862, New Orleans is already in, in United. Someone, you want to Google that. But New Orleans falls very quickly into, into, into the Union hands. I don't think it was such a scary operation, but it was. He was a spy. He would then later, things get even weirder. At some point, he got sent on a presidential mission to try to figure out if he can negotiate a peace treaty with the South. And he was sent quietly to Richmond, Virginia, to meet with a leader, a significant influential person in the South to try to go ahead and see if they can bargain together some kind of peace treaty. Who would a Jewish doctor from the North, who would he go meet to try to work out some kind of peace deal with the South? Who would he go speak to? Judah Benjamin, the Jewish senator, who is now Secretary of State. But nothing came of it. Again, I don't, it sounds like a pretty big deal. I don't think it was. 
this was a very common thing. Everyone was trying to be the hero. This wasn't like the one guy. Everyone was trying to, the, 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 the Civil War, let me just take a pause for a second. When we talk about the Civil War, you have to understand the magnitude of the calamity. If you put every fatality of every war, of every soldier who fought in every war in the United States, save that of the Civil War, and you put it over here on one side of the scale, and you put the fatalities of the Civil War only on this side of the scale, which one will weigh it down? So actually, it's this, but it's only brand new. I think that was like in the last 10 years. But it was virtually up until like the last 10, 15 years, it was the Civil War. It, it, more than 620,000, I think they say, is the casual, is the, or the it's just a, a, a bizarrely high, this country lay in ruin. Atlanta was destroyed. The South was destroyed. These cities were lay in ruin. Everyone was trying to solve the problem. There are many people who were trying to seek peace, you know, missions. And Lincoln would constantly say, and there were, this is a much, this is a, it's, it's, I don't want to overstate it. And I think he overstates it a little bit. It was not a significant mission. If you research Lincoln and all the various different, you know, potential solutions to try and negotiate peace, this is not even in there. There were many other much more significant ones, but Zachary tried. Zachary fell out of favor with America's political uh, political elite immediately after the death of Lincoln. In early 1870s, he claimed to have served, uh, he claimed to have served as the Sharapatist in chief for the United States Army, and he claimed that the army owed him money for his services rendered. The country, did, the government dismissed him, and he left in a huff to the United Kingdom, where he practiced, continued his practice, and eventually died. Jan- July 4th, 1863 is a significant day in American history. July 4th in 1863, two things happened. First of all, Battle of Gettysburg. Same time, what people don't isn't quite as remembered, but probably just as significant was the it was the victory at Vicksburg. These were two massive, probably the two biggest Union victories happened on the same day, July fourth, eighteen sixty three, which also just so happened to be Shiva Asr Batamos, the seventeenth day of the Jewish month of Tamos, which is a day of mourning and fasting where we mourn the destruction of the temple, the Beis Hamikdash, and Jews around the country. They do every year. We still do. We're mourning on Shiva Asabatamas. Sabato Moraes, who was a rabbi, actually a very significant, kind of a, a forgotten figure in Jewish history, but he was a very significant. He was the founder of JTS, Jewish Theological Seminary, which is kind of like the seminary where conservative rabbis get their ordination. He founded, this, the J, he founded JTS. He would actually go on to found, all things, the OU. Anyone familiar with the OU, the Orthodox Union? If you ever go buy kosher, you get the OU. He was one of the founders of the OU. So he was one of the most influential people in the conservative movement. He's also a significant person in the Orthodox movement. He was kind of a rabbi slash religious figurehead of Mikveh Israel in Philadelphia. And as the, the, the guns come to silence in Gettysburg and Vicksburg, Shiva Asr Batamas, the country is, you know, I guess in his congregation, I'm sure they were talking about the mourning of the base Hamigdash in the temple, but he also spoke about in Yoni Dioma, what was happening around him, the, the, the events of the day, obviously the civil war. And he gave, this is an excerpt from his sermon. The murky clouds, which have long hovered all over the American horizon, are gathered at length, menacingly nearer to our houses. Behold, my hearers, 
the deplorable, deplorable consequences and we, the dust raised by the feet of the invasion has tarnished, has tarnished our, I don't know what this word is, eskutishan. I had to Google. That means like our shields. Havoc and devastation rage in our borders. Encircle Pennsylvania with thy mighty shield. Reference to God. Protect the lives of her inhabitants. Recall the event which four score and seven years ago brought to this new world light and joy. Everyone catch that last reference? Four score and seven years ago, reference to 1776. That sermon was published and very likely Lincoln got a copy of it. And in Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, which is a few months later, I think it was in November, September or November of 1863, obviously begin, famously begins with four score and seven years ago. Did Lincoln plagiarize Sabato Moraes? We'll never know. It's possible. The, the different theories, it's, it's, it's uncanny. So a couple theories. Number one, there, this is four score and seven years ago is actually kind of a, a, of a based off of a funny translation in the Christian Bible of one of the Psalms. So it could be they both came up with it on their own independently. They use these high pollutant, strange biblical language. You know, I don't know, <laughs> but it's weird. It's bizarre. The most significant event for Jews during the Civil War, we had a whole class about this. Um, we're not going to get into it too much tonight. We only have a few minutes left. But certainly the most significant event for, that impacted the Jews during the Civil War was Grant's infamous General Orders number. 11. General Orders number 11, Headquarters, 13th Army Corps, Department of the Tennessee, Oxford, Mississippi, December 17th, 1862. Number one, the Jews as a class violating every regulation of trade established by the Treasury Department and also department orders are hereby expelled from the department. Two, within 24 hours from the receipt of this order by the post commanders, they will see that all of this class of people be furnished passes and required to leave. And anyone returning after such notification will be arrested and held in confinement until an opportunity occurs of sending them out as prisoners, unless furnished with permit from headquarters. Three, no permits will be given, will be given these people to visit headquarters for the purpose of making personal application for trade permits by order of Major, Major General U.S. Grant. Notorious order number 11 is by far and away, without exception, the most notorious anti-Semitic issuance ever of the United States coming from, from the United States government. Jews were kicked out of the Department of Tennessee, which was a massive area of land. Basically, the Department of Tennessee, roughly speaking, is from the Appalachian Mountains to the, to the basically the Mississippi, from the Ohio all the way down to the, it was a humongous portion of land. Lincoln, now, we gave a whole class about that. You know, what happened? What was motivating Lincoln? Was Lincoln, uh, not, not Lincoln, Grant, sorry. What was motivating Grant? Why did he issue that decree? What was the context? Was it Grant an anti-Semite? I don't think he was. How could he issue that? That's a whole other discussion. What's interesting for our conversation is that what happened immediately, everyone, Jews around the country, petitioned Lincoln. They got to stop this. The story goes, this is quoted by so many sources, is that a fellow from Paducah, Paducah, Kentucky, where it was Really, that's where the, the only Jews that really were kicked out were the Jews of Paducah, Kentucky, including one Caesar Caskell. And he knocks on Lincoln's door and tells him what happened. Lincoln. And so the children of Israel were driven from the happy land of Canaan? Caesar Caskell. Yes. And that is why we have come to our, unto Father Abraham's bosom 
asking protection, Lincoln, and protection they shall have. Did that really happen? Probably not in that kind of language. That's just like dramatized for effect. But Lincoln, immediately upon hearing the order, rescinded the decree, and Jews were let back into, into the department. The Democrats wanted to hang Grant. Interestingly, is that Lincoln didn't. Lincoln wanted the issue to kind of go away, which it kind of did until Grant ran for president, and then it didn't go away. Why would Lincoln do that? Lincoln, who liked Jews and was fond of the Jews, and he sees this horribly anti-Semitic decree, why would he excoriate? Why would he call out Grant and wag his finger in indignation? The answer is obvious, because Lincoln had no fighting generals. He couldn't afford to lose Grant. Grant was the one general in the Union who actually stood up and actually fought and had some courage. So he had to make kind of a moral choice of, we're not going to sack Grant. We're just going to kind of make it go away. He didn't want, they, there was um, a petition in Congress to uh, censor Grant. Lincoln really didn't want that, want that to happen. He rescinded the order, wanted it to go away, and everyone move on. And that's what happened. After the war, we know Richmond falls on, I don't know, April 11th or so, April, April 9th, April 10th, April 11th, 1865. And then tragically on April 15th, Friday night, Lincoln goes to Ford Theater to watch a play, My American Cousin, I think is what it was called, and is assassinated by John Wilkes Booth. One of the doctors, and immediately the, the doctors who, who cared for Lincoln, there were about three or four doctors who were there. They immediately knew it was fatal. He never regained, but from the moment he was shot, he never regained consciousness, and they knew he was fatal. They moved him across the street. For anyone, if you go to Ford's Theater today, you can see the booth that he was assassinated, and you can see the hostel that he died in. He, they, they laid him in a teeny bed. Lincoln was tall, 6'4". He had to lie sideways, across, like diagonal across the bed. Dr. Lieberman was a Jewish optometrist. He was one of the doctors there who... Uh, who you know cared for Lincoln? Supposedly they say that in order to try to alleviate his his uh, suffering, he like shoved like two pints of like brandy into Lincoln to try like to make the the pain. And uh, when they were trying to operate or do some kind of work, he cut a lock of hair from Lincoln and gave it to Mary Todd Lincoln. I think we still have that lock of hair. Someone Lincoln is, ass- is assassinated as I said, April fifteenth. It's a Friday evening. Shabbos Halamai Pesach, and the Jews you know, are of the first, they're in shul the next day, they're in synagogue. And many, many shuls, many, many congregations, and they found out about it immediately and they eulogized him. In Sherith Israel, we mentioned the congregation Sherith Israel, they recited the Kel Malay Rachamim, Isaac Lezer, who was kind of like the leader of the Orthodox world, they, he approved of it. And, um, you know, it was considered a tragedy. After Lincoln died, as I mentioned, Lincoln, such an important point. Lincoln was a polarizing figure. Lincoln, nowadays, we think of Lincoln, and who doesn't love Lincoln? Back then, he was not, he, he only won, he won, he did not even have a majority when he won in, 18, in 1860. He only got like something like 39% of the vote. He was not a particularly well-liked, I mean, they literally fought a war against him. After his death, he was mourned and grieved, and his reputation was embraced, even by people like Isaac Mayer Wise, who we saw who started five days after his, his death, you know, wants to take Lincoln as part of his own. One of the passages I always love, I find so meaningful, Rambam teaches us. So fundamental in Judaism, 
We have free choice. You have free will. If you want to do what's right, if you want to do what's correct, and to be righteous, that's your choice. If you want to go ahead and kind of lean and do that which is incorrect, that which is evil, that's also your choice. Don't think for a moment. This that they that they say tipshe umos rov gomle bnei yisrael that fools think don't believe for a moment. Shachadosh Baruch Hu gozer ala adam etchilas briyaso lios tzadik arasha. Don't think for a moment that you've been preordained from the moment you were born. You're going to be righteous. You're going to be wicked. Ena davar kain. It is not correct. Elakol adam va'adam. Every single person, Roy Leos Tzadik Kemosh Rabbeinu, every person can be as righteous as a Moses, a Russia Kirava, or you could be a villain like Jeroboam, like Yeravam Ben Nevat. Rambam goes ahead and he calls this, this idea of free will, that at the cornerstone of Judaism is the idea, you have choice, it's your choice to do that's what's right, and it's your choice to avoid that which is wrong. And you are not predetermined or predestined for failure nor for success. He calls this, says the Rambam, he calls it the foundation of Judaism. He calls it the Yisod HaGadah. He calls it the foundation of Judaism. Is you have to take responsibility and believe it's your choice to go ahead and choose to do that's what, what's right and avoid that which is wrong. I'm not claiming that Lincoln was righteous like a Moses. But I've always found, you know, as a rabbi, I mentioned this to a couple of people, as a rabbi, you're supposed to answer the following. You always get, if you had the opportunity to meet any historical figure, who would you want to meet? So as a rabbi, I'm supposed to say, I would like to meet Moses. I would like to meet Rambam. I want to go... Right? And those are all true. I would love to meet Abraham. I would love to meet Abraham Lincoln. You know, we think of Lincoln, he was just the most significant person in American history. And we think of him as this great man, literally a towering figure of moral righteousness. And the challenges that he faced are just unimaginable. You think you've got Saras? Imagine being the guy responsible for the death of more than a half a million of your nation's youth. It, and he, it, it ate him up. There's a touching picture. If you have a moment when you're done after tonight's class, you'll see the picture in that middle poster. You see the picture of Lincoln on the left without the beard. And that picture on the right is him with the beard. That, those pictures were taken by a Jewish photographer right there. And the picture of him with that little teeny beard over, that's the first picture of him with the beard. There's a touching story. If you may have heard the story of Grace Bedell, how he grew that beard. It's absolutely charming. Read those letters. But when you think of Abraham Lincoln, you think of the guy with the beard, right? Lincoln was, only had that beard for the last five years of his life. And it was those five years of his life, that were, those were the only five years they actually accomplished anything. Lincoln was basically a failure his entire life. He accomplished nothing. He came from nowhere. His father was illiterate. His mother died when he was nine, and he was raised by no one. 
His sister, who he loved, died when he was 20. His only true love in life was Anne Rutledge, the woman he wanted to marry. She died. His wife, as we mentioned, was Mary Todd Lincoln, was a Meshuggah. She was crazy. He had an impossible life. He buried two children. His firstborn, Eddie, and little Willie, while he was president, dies in the White House. He was a man, based on every metric, should have been a failure. He was an ugly man, and he knew it. Every description that you see people talking about Lincoln from his youngest of ages till he died, everyone says, they're stri- they're, it's striking how ugly he was. He was awkward. And he's the greatest American to ever live. It's such an inspiration. You know, for all of us, I, I study Lincoln, and I just find that so inspiring. Rashus called Adam Nasunalov. You have free will. You want to accomplish great things. That's your choice. Lincoln had everything not going for him, literally. And he becomes such a giant. And not only that, I take inspiration. You know, I'm still young yet, I hope. He only becomes great in the last couple of years of his life. He's so human to think. You know, we just were reading in these, these week's Torah portions. We're reading about Moses. Reading about Moshe Rabbeinu. No one will ever rise to the greatness of a Moses. It's a striking thing is that if you study the story of Moses, we read, yes, he was raised in the Pharaoh's house. And then you read, if you remember the story, Moses, he goes ahead and he, he someone rats on him. He, killed, he stood up for a Jew and he has to flee to the land of Midian. And then you read the next chapter, you know, God, you know, sees Moses, the burning bush. God says, Moses, I want you to go ahead and be the leader of the Jewish people and 10 plagues, Exodus, split the sea, the whole story. There's a little problem there, is that during that little gap, when Moses flees, goes to Midian, burning bush, that's the bulk of his life. He's 80 years old. The day before the burning bush happens, you say, Moses, I want you to know you're going to be the most significant person in the history of humanity. You're going to tell me what you're talking about. I'm just a, I'm a stranger in a strange land. I'm a shepherd for some guy. In Midian, I'm a Jew I, from Egypt. I, I don't know what you're talking about. And he would have been wrong. He would become the most significant person in the history of humanity. If you would have tapped Abraham Lincoln or any of his friends in the mid, before the Kansas-Nebraska Act in 1854 and said, I want you to know this will be the most significant person in American history, you would have said not in a million years, and you would have been dead wrong. Rishuskal Adam Nasunalo. We all have the opportunity to go ahead and make great choices. And I just want to end with one last idea. Torah tells us the end of the book of Genesis is Jacob encounters the Pharaoh for the Pharaoh enslaves the Jews. Pharaoh's still a good guy. And the Pharaoh, is, he, it, he looks at Jacob and it's striking. Jacob looks so old and withered and, and he says, how old are you? Like, what's, this, what's your life story? You look like you're an exhausted man. Jacob says, I forget how old, I think it was 137, I believe. And he says, my life, there are very few. I just, I, it was, I've lived a very difficult life, a very hard life. He says, in the classic commentaries, he says, God, Jacob was punished for saying that. Jacob was punished for saying that he had a difficult life. That's the king, the way, the way that it's, commentary says, how Jacob, how could you say that? You know, 
Didn't God save you from Lavan who tried killing you? Didn't God save you from Asav who tried saving you? Didn't you get Dina, your daughter, who was abducted while she was returned to you? And Joseph, who you thought was dead, he was returned to you. How can you say that you have had a hard life? Look at all the blessing in your life. How can you say it was difficult? It always struck me is, but I don't get that. But he was almost killed by Lavan. He was almost killed by Asav. His daughter was abducted. Joseph was, he thought, was dead for 20 years. So, yes, the story ends well, but while he was going through it, it was very, very, very difficult. He had a very, very traumatic life. I want to tell you the story of two people. I know I identify two different people. I can find it. Mr. A served in the army. No, that's the wrong one. Sorry. Mr. A grew up in poverty. His mother died when he was nine. He had a bad relationship with his father, and his girlfriend died at 22. He eventually married a woman he never really loved and had a really bad marriage. He buried two of his four children. He was awkward in appearance and considered ugly by most. He was cluttered and messy. As an attorney, his colleagues unilaterally moved him from one of the most important cases he would ever work on. He likely suffered from depression all of his life. Who's Mr. A? Mr. B was an incredibly influential person. He was beloved by his friends, had an incredible sense of humor, and was one of the best storytellers of his time, and had an uncanny ability to bring out the best from others. He was an absolutely brilliant person, yet totally relatable. He was a warm and affectionate father and held deep and lasting relationships, even with people who disagreed with him. Who's Mr. B? That's Abraham Lincoln. Well, which one is it? One of the most important lessons in life. Such an important lesson in life. And it's the story of Lincoln. It's so often in life, we look at our lives as football games. You have how many points did you score? Those are the good things in my life. How many points did I let up? Those are the bad things that I have in my life. And we hope that what ends up happening is I have, we're rooting for men. And if there are more bad points than there are good points, so I'm losing. If I try to accumulate more good points, I'm winning. And we kind of like look at that. Our life is like a football game. Always remember, it's such an important lesson. We want to achieve happiness in life. The good in your life never cancels out the bad, and the bad never cancels out the good. It's not a football game. There are good things in our lives, and there are bad things in our lives, and they happen simultaneously. We have a lot of bad blessings in our lives, and we have a lot of not such blessings in our lives. And they don't cancel each other out. And don't ever let the bad things and the stresses and the failures and the negativity in your life go ahead and say, well, therefore, I'm not going to enjoy the positivity and the goodness and the blessing and the successes of my life. Human nature is such, and you see it from the story of Jacob, I think that's why he was punished, why he's held accountable, is to some degree, the negatives of his life were canceling out the positives. And God was sort of telling him, yes, you had a stressful life. Yes, you had difficulty. Yes, you had challenges. But you also, at the same time, had blessings. You also had salvations and goodnesses. And don't let the stresses and negativity cancel out the bad things in your life. Lincoln suffered tremendously. Lincoln had tremendous failures. Negativity like we can't imagine. And at the same time, he was also one of the most successful people that ever lived. We have free will. We have free choice. Please, God, if we take the inspiration of an Abraham Lincoln, We too can accomplish great things. I want to thank you all for coming.
invite you to come, keep on coming to our different classes, programs, and events here at the Kolel. If anyone has any questions, I'm happy to stick around. If anyone wants to dive in Marev, it's in the building next door. You're a couple minutes late, but don't worry. There's food over here and I'm happy to stick around. Thank you all for coming. But Thank you for listening to this edition of the Jewish History Podcast. As always, we'd really appreciate if you like and share this podcast or even better, leave a comment. For more information, please visit us at www.lasvegascolo.org. 